This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. The health of our oceans is essential to the health of our planet. We'll hear from a sea captain who discovered a huge area of floating plastic waste. This set off alarm bells. I came back two years later equipped with sampling equipment to measure how much was out there, and that's when we really found the plastic soup a thousand miles in diameter. Then, we'll talk with a man who says he had every excuse to fail in life but who became a successful entrepreneur and businessman. I was dealing with it and I was holding on to so much and I had to choose the right thing to do and that was forgive the man from murdering my mother so I can't move forward in life. Those two stories and much more are coming your way on this week's edition of InfoTrack. Stay with us. The program begins right after this. show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. The skipper of an ocean-going vessel encountered a massive area of plastic debris floating in the Pacific. What did he do about it? You'll want to hear the story. With more, here's InfoTrack's Taryn McCall. Taryn? Thanks, Chris. We're talking with Captain Charles Moore, who discovered a mass of plastic in the Pacific Ocean. He's the co-author of Plastic Ocean, how a sea captain's chance discovery launched a determined quest to save the oceans. Welcome to InfoTrack, Captain. Thanks. Happy to be with you. Tell us how you made the discovery. I was the captain of a research vessel, and there happened to be a sailing research vessel that had been dismasted, meaning that the mast had broken off in a storm. And I had replaced it with one twice as strong and re-rigged it, but I wanted to put it under stress and, you know, really put it to the test. So I entered a grueling race, a 2,500-mile race from Los Angeles to Honolulu in 1997. And you can't just turn around and go the way you came because the wind will be blowing right in your face. So you've got to do what we call tacking, which is to head north until you get westerly winds, and then you can... Uh, come about and head towards the Pacific coast. And I decided to take a shortcut because I'm a research vessel. I had twin diesel engines. I had extra fuel. So I decided, well, what the heck, I'm not going to go all the way almost to Alaska before I head over to my home port of Los Angeles. I'm just going to turn right at the latitude of Los Angeles. And by doing that, I was uh, crossing what they call the doldrums. And it took a week to cross this area of light winds. And during that crossing, because the winds were so light, this material, this plastic material, which is very neutrally buoyant. It's almost just a little bit lighter than the water itself, so it doesn't take much wind to mix it down underneath where you can't see it. But I could not come out on deck without seeing a shard of plastic float by. It might have been a bottle cap, a corner of a crate, or maybe the neck of a soap bottle, just some bit. And it wouldn't have made me think anything was wrong if it had only been a chance sighting here and there. But if a week's time went by, and I, you know, frequently come on deck to survey the horizon as the ship's captain, every single time I came on deck, I was able to see some of this material. So this set off alarm bells. And I came back two years later equipped with sampling equipment to measure how much was out there. And that's when we really found the plastic soup. That's when our analysis found that there was six times as much plastic by weight as the zooplankton, which is the base of the marine food web. So if you've got a non-digestible, non-nutritive component of the food chain displacing the natural food, 
then you've got a problem. How large exactly is this mass? Well, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the eastern garbage patch of the North Pacific Gyre is a thousand miles in diameter. I mean, that was the situation in 97. I was crossing a thousand mile stretch and I saw plastic the whole way. You know, it's 2,500 miles from Los Angeles to Hawaii. So a thousand miles in the middle of that, you leave about 750 miles on either side. You've got a central zone which is highly polluted, and the subsequent research has kind of verified that rather than call it twice the size of Texas, let's just say it's a circle with a diameter of a thousand miles. And how does all this discarded plastic end up in this one tract of ocean? Well, it's on highways leading there from the Pacific Rim. It's a resting place for trash, like a toilet that doesn't flush. It comes from Japan, it comes from China, it comes from the Philippines, it comes from Russia, but it also comes from Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle. We've got a kind of a current that scours the land and leads to the gyre, and that's where it's coming from. Now, there is deposition from ships. They're not guiltless in this. Marine disposable practices uh, were supposed to be curtailed by the treaty in 1988. Uh, Marpole Annex 5 prohibited the dumping of plastic anywhere in the ocean. But not all ships obey that, and the enforcement is very lax. So we still have a good deal of dumping going on from ships, and fishing boats accidentally lose gear. There's derelict fishing gear from the fishing industry just broken apart by storms and lost in the activities of fishing. So those are the components of the waste that we see out in these gyres. Let's talk a little about the threats this pose. I mean, we think of it as being somewhere out in the middle of the ocean where it's not doing any immediate harm, at least to people. But what kind of threat does this pose to ocean life and to seafaring vessels? What we're really concerned about is how this plastic waste acts as both predator and prey to marine life. As predator, it's tangling things. It's killing by making it so they can't swim, by making it so it's hard for them to feed, by strangling them. This is killing hundreds of thousands of marine mammals every year. And as prey, it's looking like food. Plastic means infinitely moldable. So you've got these different colors, these different shapes, these different textures. And that's fooling creatures into consuming them, especially the seabirds, the albatross. It's an amazing trick that we're playing on these creatures that have evolved this strategy of getting anything out of the ocean. The albatross is a kind of a vulture in the ocean, eating any kind of detritus out there. and They're easily fooled by this plastic waste and then regurgitated into their chicks on Midway Island and French Frigate Shoals and Curie Atoll, where their nests are. These chicks are waiting to be fed, and what they're being fed is our trash. It's a very sad thing. Not only birds, but fish. We found 35% of the fish we caught out there to have ingested plastic, an average of about two pieces per fish. So we're putting the ocean on a plastic diet. What, if anything, is being done to get rid of the waste? In California, especially in Southern California, what we call structural controls are being employed. That's where you put a grate or a screen over the catch basin on the street, the gutter where things would normally roll in. They're kept out of going into the gutter, and the street sweeper can get them. That's for a metropolitan area. But for rural areas and areas that are not densely populated, it's difficult because you don't have recycling infrastructure, you know, you don't have 
trash pickup where they separate the different kinds of recyclables and transfer stations really need to become resource recovery parks where we go for resources rather than you know trucking it off to the landfill let's separate it carefully and let's make it available to folks so if you've got a foundry and you need some glass you get your glass from the transfer station if you need some aluminum to make an implement you can get it from a transfer station if you need some paper you can get it from a transfer station. We need to start thinking about zero waste, about resource recovery. So, yeah, we can try to control it once it escapes, but the best way is to not let it escape in the first place. Your co-author in this book, Cassandra Phillips, has a grant to explore using recycled plastic as a plant growth medium. It's fascinating what she found. She didn't use one kind of plastic in her trials. She used everything from carpet to styrofoam cups and plastic bags. And we've been kind of brought into the plastic age thinking plastic was inert, that, you know, we can wrap all our food in it, we can have it in our houses as carpet, we can make our cars out of it and our clothes out of it. But what she found was it's far from inert. Even with something like an orchid, it really changed the growth habit. And I think the worst one that killed the most plants was the carpet. And I think the styrofoam pellets actually acted as a accelerant to growth. So she found that far from being inert, plastic is very bioactive. And that's one of the key findings in work on plastic in the modern era is that we really need to rethink how we're using this stuff. It has these compounds that mimic natural estrogen, and it's starting to be implicated in this global epidemic of diabetes and obesity. We've been talking with Captain Charles Moore, who is co-author of Plastic Ocean, How a Sea Captain's Chance Discovery Launched a Determined Quest to Save the Oceans. Thank you so much for being with us today on InfoTrack. Thanks. Happy to be with you. I'm Taryn McCall for InfoTrack. Next, he grew up without a father, and his mother was murdered, yet he beat the odds to become a winner. It's an inspiring story you won't want to miss. Stay tuned. There's more InfoTrack coming up. 